Champagne Sharks, how's it going? We are with uh, Laura Bazelon. We did another episode with Laura related to her writings about progressive prosecutors and innocence, innocence deniers who are prosecutors who abuse their power and ignore evidence of innocence of defendants and also her role in criticizing Kamala Harris's campaign in the New York Times. So definitely check that out. It's available to patrons over at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Subscribe for $5 a month. You get access to at this point, probably over 120 back bonus episodes. So definitely do that. But we want to talk to her in this episode about her book Rectify. So first let's introduce Mario. Uh, hey, Mario, say what's up to the people. Hey, everybody. It's Mario. You can catch me on Twitter at MDMill79. Good to be on. Yeah. And Laura, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Sure. So my name is Laura Bazelon. I'm a law professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, and I direct the criminal and juvenile justice and racial justice clinics there. Okay. And we're talking about your book, Rectify. So if you don't mind telling people the overall subject of your book and what motivated you to write it, why you thought it was important to write. I wrote it because so I had this case <clears throat> when I was the director of a pretty small innocence project in Los Angeles called the Loyola Law School Project for the Innocent. And we had a case and not kidding, our client's name, his actual real name is Cash Register. So his last name is Register <laughs> and his mom named him Cash. And she named the other brother Norman. And Cash <laughs> was accused He's African-American. He was accused of killing an elderly white man in a robbery. And he didn't do it. But he was tried in 1979 in L.A. in front of an all-white jury, and they convicted him based on the testimony of these two people who came in and lied, essentially. I mean, they lied their asses off, to be completely frank. And as a result of that, he spent 34 years in prison. And the process of getting him out was really hard. It took a long time, and the DA was fought us the entire time. So... When we finally won, because we had kind of what was essentially a retrial, I remember feeling like I had reached this sort of pinnacle of my career, that I was never going to achieve again that kind of a victory, right? Because if you're the lead trial lawyer in that case, and it's weeks long and years long slog, and then this person is exonerated, you have this feeling of accomplishment that's really hard to describe. And I called my dad, who's a trial lawyer, because I wanted my dad to be happy for me. And my dad said, well, what's his life going to be like now? I mean, it's 2013, right? What is going to happen to him now? And because I had been so focused on just sort of surgically dismantling the state's case and leaving it in a heaping pile of garbage on the ground, I hadn't thought that far ahead what it was going to be like a week later or a year later or five years later. I hadn't thought that far. I was just focused on getting him out. And I started thinking, okay, how do you heal from that kind of a trauma? I mean, you've been locked away for as long as a lot of people have been alive and you get out into this world that's completely unfamiliar. On top of that, you have all of this psychological and physical baggage of being incarcerated. How do you heal from that? And so I got really interested in trying to figure out what the answer to that question was. Yeah. And Mario, you asked in the previous episode about kind of like prescriptions for changing the system. And this book actually does talk about that in the back end of the book. So you're going to have plenty of opportunity to kind of uh, expand on those questions if you're wondering about that. But the beginning part of the book is more about actual examples of all these different um, abuses of the system, especially in the prosecu uh, prosecutorial side and the witnesses. And one thing that really 
I thought about with this book was recently in the news, the Central Park Five and that uh, miniseries When They See Us was released. And if you had your interest in the topic piqued by that miniseries, this really shows how typical that experience can be. Like there is a lot of messed up examples in in this in this one. The one where the guy got wrongfully convicted, got raped in jail, and got HIV really wrecked me. I was like, oh my God. Like there's so many uh it was it's a, it's 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 not a super depressing book, all things considered. You, you would think it, it would be, but it's actually not. It's actually you end there with a pretty optimistic feeling about the power of things to change, surprisingly. But the parts where it does get depressing can be pretty depressing. You know, it's interesting because you're so right that you're very close to being wrongfully convicted at all times if you're a certain kind of person. And by a certain kind of person, I mean, essentially a young black man. It's shocking to me how little separates you from being safe in your liberty and being locked up for life for something you didn't do. And what's also kind of crazy to me, my students and I are litigating a case right now. I mean, you could say, okay, well, cash registers case, that was 1979. We're litigating a case right now where our client is completely innocent. He's doing 60 years at hard labor, basically on a plantation in Louisiana. Ugh. And he went down, he went down in 2012. So it's happening all the time. And and that yep. part is yep. really hard for me to wrap my head around. It's like, okay, my client had an alibi. He was eight miles away. His lawyers didn't present it. All this other stuff went horribly wrong. The trial itself lasted two hours. How is this possible in America? And it's happening now, every day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not even factoring in situations where people are given the choice of taking a case to trial and dealing with the accusations in front of a potentially biased jury or taking a plea deal. And they know that they didn't commit the crime, but, you know, you're looking at 15 to 20 years versus looking at 90 years. A lot of guys will just, they won't take that chance and they'll go ahead and they'll plead out for the 15 to 20 years, even though they very well may not have committed the crime. You know, I've heard stories like that. He would take it. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. And you. Yeah. And that was the thing that sort of initially attracted me to this case. But yeah, the thing that like really upsets me about wrongful convictions is that they're still happening, but they're happening you know, if you're white and you have money, you're not getting wrongfully convicted. Let's just be real. And it's such a waste. I mean, God, the guy we're representing, he's such an amazing guy. Of course, if he wasn't an amazing guy, it would still be wrong. But it's just such a waste. Such a waste. Yeah. he he's it's a, And that's a lot of the, people don't take that into consideration. That's what I said earlier about these are actual people's lives, you know, that you that you're playing with when you do these things. And you don't look at certain evidence and you don't and you ignore things and put it on the back burner. You, you know, you have a guy that um, you're taking him off the streets for 30 some odd years. And, and, you know, fortunately, people are able to come and and help to free them. But like your father had pointed out and what you didn't think about was, yeah, what happens once he gets out? He he he's going to have PTSD and, and all the other things that come with that and, you know, having to adjust to. You know, the way the world works now, that's that's um, that's something people don't think about. You know, people want to say, oh, well, OK, but your client got all this money, which is true. My client did get a lot of money. Um, and that's not always true because it really depends on the state and a lot of other things. There's some states that are actually implementing very low uh, 
pathetic. Like here's twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars for twenty years. Right. Right. But let's Yeah, yeah. I, I I think I think in your book you mentioned Pennsylvania has like Ugh. no type of wrongful conviction suit. Zero. You yeah. don't get anything. Anything. Right. So so but let's just assume you're quote unquote lucky and you get five million dollars. That is not an insurance policy against completely falling apart because you can't readjust. I mean, it's just not, it's not like you can throw a bunch of money at someone and expect them to be okay. That's not how the human brain works. And a lot of stuff gets eaten up too by like legal fees and all that. And relatives who come out of the woodwork who you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Always Uh, the relatives you've never heard of. Always the relatives. (laughs) 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 Your Aunt Betty and you're like, who are you? (laughs) They're worse than the lawyers, man. They were nowhere to be found when you were locked up. You lost lost your... uh, Yeah. Yeah, Man, I wanted to come see you, but I couldn't. I couldn't face you. I couldn't dare look at you like that. It was so painful. I couldn't. But can you give me $5,000? Because there's this. Yeah. So it's just. Yeah. And also, you can't. I mean, you're talking about a lot of people who they don't even know how the modern day banking system works, much less like having an annuity or some other thing. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, they're just you're sending people out naked and defenseless, ready to be ripped off. So. There's a real million reasons why throwing a bunch of money at someone is not the answer. I'm not saying they shouldn't get money. Of course, you should give people money. It's just that's not the end of the equation. Um, I want to ask you this before we uh, dive into the meat and potatoes of the book. Uh, did you see when they uh, when they see us? And yes, how, how did you how did you feel about it as a miniseries? Okay, so I followed this case really closely. <clears throat> um, and I also watched the documentary called the Central Park Five, which came out earlier. And this case is just so horrifying. And then I got really obsessed with it in a super nerdy law professor way. And I went back and I read all the documents. So I read all the interrogations. I read all the filings because they're online because the case is so famous. And it is just horrifying to me what they did to these young men. I mean, they, boys really, that they isolated them, that they tormented them. It's just horrific. And what's so interesting to me about that case is that it took until it took that documentary when they see us, it took that dramatic presentation to actually finally hold the prosecutors to account, right? Because like the Central Park Five, they got $40 million in, in money. And going back to whether money is appropriate as kind of a resolution, they still had Donald Trump campaigning, saying in 2016, they're guilty. And they had the prosecutor, Linda Fairstein, best-selling author, saying they're still guilty. And they were mm-hmm. unaccountable for all of that. And it was kind of fascinating to me that this miniseries was able to tell the story in a way that real facts were not. And it had this unbelievable impact in terms of changing the way that regular people thought about that case and thought about who yeah. really should be held to account. Yeah, I'm conflicted about the miniseries for that reason because I felt it was a little too focused on the melodramatic and mm-hmm. it had like a lot of melodrama and I kind of wanted more of the facts. Like it was a little too focused on Donald Trump and I think that's a little bit of presentism because Don- Donald Trump is a big thing now. I mean, he wasn't irrelevant back then. That that big that big page ad was, um, you know, very memorable. I was, I was alive at the time. But they kind of inflated his role in it but meanwhile like ed Koch was pretty awful to them as 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 well horrible and that had much more of an impact than uh 
Donald Trump at the time. But, they, you know, little things like that and a, a lack of focus on the structural, which your book goes into a lot about how these things happen, um, the the incentives that kind of make them happen that are built into the system. But like you said, the melodrama worked. So it's like, okay, even if it's not my personal preference for how I would like to see this handled, the fact that it um, moved people to finally do something in the way that, like you said, the facts in the documentary didn't, uh, who am I at the end of the day to uh, say that wasn't the right way to do it? But can I just say something to your point, which I think is really important? Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about this. The reason why that case was such a big deal was because it was a white woman who was raped and nearly killed. The same night that that happened to her, it happened to a number of Black and Latina women, not just in New York, but also in Boston the same night, a woman was repeatedly raped and killed. And those cases didn't get any attention because the victims weren't white. And that's the other thing that I think is a really important idea, which is we traditionally default to essentializing victims and thinking of all victims as young white women, which is statistically false and I think deeply problematic because we ignore all of these other victims. I mean, what does it say that that documentary probably wouldn't have been made and we wouldn't know who the Central Park Five were if the victim hadn't been white? And I think that's also a really important question that we all need to ask ourselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the victim was white and the um, accused were Black and Latino, like that that as well, because that taps into a very major part of American history. You mentioned that in your book, too. Like, it's a very loaded, um, activates something in a lot of people. It's very loaded and I think almost kind of ensured their guilt from the get-go because it plays into all these racist stereotypes about over-sexualized Black men preying on white women. And the jury was just ready to eat that up and the prosecutors were ready to eat that up. And they didn't really, on some level, even care if it was true or false because the DNA had come back at that point, And it didn't match to any of the, the kids and they still went forward. It was just so easy to, to, Uh-oh. to tell that story and have people kind of nod along and be like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. When it didn't and, make any sense at all, at all. It's, it's something that I get, I think gets under, um, discussed is it not only horrifies the white American imagination, but it honestly like titillates them a lot too. Like there was a very titillating aspect to how that was covered in the news at the time even though i was like a little kid at the time i remember that like there was something that even i was able to tell was there was something that titillated people about this uh rape yes i think that case was kind of pressing on a bruise and it did it it was this idea that all these stereotypes that we've had that are based on slavery and endemic racism were somehow going to be validated by this case and that we were able to be like, oh, yeah, we were right all along. It, it, there's something really almost demented about it. Yeah, I thought it had like a double purpose. Like it horrified people, but the horrifying aspect of it was fused with like a titillating aspect. And you got like this safe space to kind of enjoy the titillation. But you can tell yourself, I'm only consuming this because I want justice. And because at the end of the day, I'm going to throw these five kids away, you know, I have a license to be titillated because I'm, because at the end, I'm justifying it with uh, prosecuting them. And that kind of uh, absolves me of any titillation I've gotten out of this. Like, uh, that I'm getting the quote unquote just um, result at the end of this. And I think that's something too that just doesn't really get uh, talked about that it not only scares people, but 
there's something that draws people to this yeah, panel. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it, it, I agree. It's weird. I don't know if you guys saw To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, but I went to see it, I don't know, four or five months ago or something. I'm sitting there thinking, what's so messed up about this? And this goes kind of the titillation aspect, because really at the heart of that story is a white woman's desire for a black man and how that can't be true. And therefore the black man must be a rapist, right? That's kind of yeah. the heart of it. Yeah. And yeah. how resonant that is. Like that trial could absolutely basically take place tomorrow. And that happened in the 1930s, right? It's yeah. just not, I don't think yeah. we've moved that far. Yeah. People don't, people take that for granted how that can easily be someone uh, tomorrow, like you said. Um, and, oh, and people kind of forget. You, you, you brought up a lot. There. We think it's a long time because of the human lifespan, but. 1930 is not that long ago, like in human history. It's like, yeah, my grandmother was born. Uh, what was grandma? No, my grandmother was born in 1932, but you know, close enough. She's, she, you know, I can go and talk to her about a lot of things that happened um, throughout history, you know. So, no, you're absolutely right. It, it's not that long ago if you really look at If you look at it in terms of just the sheer number, it seems like it's a long time ago, I suppose. But when you think about it, your your mother and your grandmother away from that date. A lot of us, you know, so that's just two steps away from that from that time period, you know. And we tell ourselves all these lies. We're like, oh, well, the Ku Klux Klan was around then. It was so much more horrible then, and we're not racist anymore. We elected Obama. It's just such a bunch of lies. Nothing mm. is all that much different. If you look at who's in jail, wow. who's in prison, who we're punishing, how we're punishing them, and who gets what rights. It's not all that much different. This guy that we like to listen to called um, Neely Fuller Jr., he always says that uh, there's three stages of um, racism, white supremacy. And he says that there's the establishment stage where you kind of establish the system. Then there's the, I might be getting this wrong, the maintenance stage uh, where, you know, you have to keep it going. But then he said the third stage is like the, the refinement stage. And he claims we're in the refinement stage now where you just basically have a lot of the same dynamics. You just, Keep refining it. Tweak because, here and um, there. Yesterday's racism becomes kind of distasteful. So you keep the same thing around, but you change the mechanism, the terms, the whatever, but it's still basically the same thing. So whereas before there'd be like a lynch mob gathering outside a courthouse uh, with pitched with nooses and, and torches demanding uh, to pull out the black prisoner and hang him by a rope. Now you have the Central Park Five and Donald Trump with uh, a full page ad and Ed Koch throwing them under the bus and so forth and so forth. But it's the same thing, but they refine it. And then that gives them the ability to look at the unrefined version of the same thing and say, oh, that's when it was bad. We've evolved so far past this. And it's, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think what happens today is especially pernicious because we pretend that it's so much better, but it's just racism with a different name and a different type of practice. The result is the same. Exactly. And that's what he calls the the refinement stage. Exactly. And um, I have a bunch of things I wrote down from uh, your book that I'm just going to mention like various things and you can um, uh, expand on them. And uh, Mario, if you have any follow-up questions on any of this stuff, jump in at any time. But uh, your book talks about a lot of stuff that happens with uh, prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct, but it also talks about things like with um, witnesses. So uh, 
one thing that keeps coming up, and I thought this was kind of interesting uh, from a science point of view, uh, the perils of cross-racial identification and the telf- and the telfare instruction, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's funny, not funny, but interesting that you bring this up because when I was telling you guys about this case that my students and I are litigating now, it was a single witness cross-racial identification that sent our client to prison for 60 years, and that happened in 2012. So it's not like it's not happening. It just happened yesterday. But basically, the idea is that we have generations of empirical data that says that people have what's called own race bias, which means we're pretty good at identifying people in our own racial group, but we're really bad once we go outside of our own racial group at identifying people. And there's been a lot of explanations for that, one of which is we live in a really segregated society. I don't know what the real answer is, but the truth is that we are horrible at it. And so when you have a violent crime and the idea in the person's mind that they're probably going to die and add to that maybe a weapon or just a violent act. And the fact that there's a cross-racial issue, the chance of misidentification skyrockets. And so in so many of these cases, the DNA cases, people would be exonerated in a cross-racial situation where they basically went down on an ID, oftentimes when a white person was saying that a black person had done it and they picked the wrong person. Something I found, well, actually, this is, a, this is a question you might not have the answer to. You didn't mention this in the book, I don't think, but I'm just curious if you know, does cross-racial identification, is it equally bad in both um, directions? Do you have any idea? I always, wonder, I always wonder if maybe because Black people are forced to look at white people so much more, whether it's through media, being like outnumbered in society, whereas a lot of white people literally have no real life black friends. It's not kind of <laughs> so, black true. so true. Y- y- so yeah. the research that we have shows that everybody's bad at it. So if you're someone of Japanese ethnicity, you're bad at identifying people who are Chinese. If you're African-American, you're pretty bad at identifying people who are Caucasian and reverse. It just, for whatever reason, we're not good at going outside of our own racial group. And you may be right that the margins get better if you're yeah, talking about a marginalized group who has to deal with stupid white people all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was wondering, because I know it's bad for everybody. I was just wondering if they broke it down to... Is it less bad? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like, are you less likely to get it wrong? And of course, because the vast majority of people who are falsely accused and convicted are people of color, it's kind of hard to say. Because it's, it's tested more often with um, one particular direction. Exactly, because it's only going in one particular direction. And uh, can you tell people what the Telfair instruction is? Because I thought it's pretty interesting that people have been cognizant about this for a long time. I'm really happy to talk about this because, okay, so I'm doing all this research for writing my book and I'm like, okay, cross-racial identification is a big problem. How far back have judges recognized this? So I stumble across this case out of the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, and that court is called a heartbeat away from the Supreme Court. It's where we got John Roberts and Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They all came off the D.C. Circuit. So the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit in the 1970s was my grandfather, this guy David Bazelon, and he wrote a concurrence in United States versus Telfair, which was kind of like a standard robbery case, but it was cross-racial. And he wrote this kind of extra opinion, and he said, you know, we have this real problem where people are really bad at identifying people outside of their own race. We need to have an instruction every time it's cross-racial ID and the jury needs to be told that. And he said, this is my instruction that I would give if I was the trial judge. And so it's called the Telfair instruction. And he wrote it, which is so crazy being me researching this book and stumbling upon 
this instruction that my grandfather wrote that a min minority of jurisdictions have adopted. And I felt this real sense of pride. And I was also thinking, my God, he was so far ahead of his time. You know, it's still the minority of jurisdictions that give it. But when they give it, it's because he wrote it in the night. Oh, did you mention that in the book? Did I miss that? No, I didn't mention it in the book, but I dedicated the book to my grandfather. And oh, very, hum very humble. Not, not to mention that in the text of the book. I, I, I would have totally dropped it in. He only gets a little footnote, but okay. he was a really um, he was just an incredible judge. He was so far thinking. He was so far ahead of, of where almost everybody else was. And I never fails to amaze me. It's not just that opinion, but so many opinions that he wrote when I was in law school, we would be reading them and I would be like, oh my God, how did he know that in 1977? But he did. And yeah, and his instruction. And, and it didn't and it didn't really catch catch on. No, it didn't. I mean, he also had an idea. Right. That's right. It's 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 in the minority, although it it's it's gaining some traction. And actually, I think I'm hoping that we have a bill pending in California that is going to sort of put some pressure on judges to give that some form of it. And they give it in New Jersey. They don't give it in most places and they should. But you're right. It's still, it, you know, he he wrote that opinion. I mean, more than half a century ago, and still it hasn't hasn't mostly caught on. But so still now he's he's on the cutting edge, which is kind of amazing. Uh, you talk about crime labs. I thought this was pretty interesting because I think with the CSI shows and not, and not just CSI but other shows, they make crime labs and forensics look. Um, pretty crazy as far as what they can supposedly do. And your book was kind of disturbing <laughs> when it talked about how freaking bad they are. I was really, like, like even, even simple stuff. Like I thought it was just going to be the next level stuff that is shown on CSI, but things as simple as just hair analysis uh, and things like that are really bad, which shocked me. I remember reading an article a long time ago about how um, people, because of the show CSI, they were having problems because people would, you know, volunteer for jury duty or whatnot. And they would all want to say, well, what's the DNA evidence? Because everybody had it in their head. Like, that's how I worked in real life, you know? So they were talking oh, about oh, how... Oh, so something, something, that was really sh something that was really shocking about your book, uh, Laura, is that you mentioned that how hard it is to leave DNA behind. Because based on those shows, you just think you just walk into a room, you're just spraying DNA right. everywhere. <laughs> you know, just, just walking in the room. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's so funny. It does create all these false expectations. I mean, there's like two levels to this. Level one is a lot of the so-called forensic science is complete junk. So you have people coming in and being like, oh, there was a bite mark on her arm and I matched it to your client's teeth. That's not a thing. That is not real. That is <laughs> but false. everybody There's thinks no it is. There's no such thing as matching teeth, okay? There's no such thing as like a matching footprint. It just doesn't work like that. We want to believe that, but it's 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 not true. So a lot of forensic stuff is just a lie. And they come in and you have this fancy expert get up there and tell you that it's a match. And what does that mean? It turns out absolutely nothing. And still in a lot of states, they're bringing in these bite mark guys to talk about bite mark matching, which isn't, as I said, a thing. So there's no, level one, which is a lot of this is just junk. Then level two is corruption. So you have some people who work in these labs who are testing the drugs and the other evidence. And some of them are addicts, so they're doing the drugs. So in San Francisco, we've had two different crime lab scandals in the past 10 years where the chemists were supposed to be testing the drugs or actually using them and falsifying wow. results. They just like kind of take it home, like take cocaine home for the night and then make up a bunch of stuff. And then level three, oh, I know, it's crazy, right? It's crazy. 
I'm telling you, this this book is crazy, man. I'm gonna, I'm gonna and, then, read it. and then level three <laughs> is the, just the sheer number. So just to give you an example, and this disturbs me greatly, but okay. So in, in oh Texas, in Harris County, which is Houston, they got a whole bunch of convictions for, for drug possession. And this goes back to kind of what we were talking about when we were talking about bail. But basically what happens is they would jail a bunch of people, surprise, surprise, mostly black and brown, stick them in jail. And they would say like, okay, you know, we pulled you over felony possession of cocaine or felony possession of meth or whatever. Right. And then they would say like, okay, here's a deal. You can plead guilty to this felony and we'll let you out tomorrow, or you can fight your case and you can stay in jail for a year. And most people just pled to the felony. And so they would have a felony because they would, so they need to get out. They needed to go back to work at their kids, keep their house, et cetera. So right. this county differed from most counties in that post-conviction, they still tested the substances the police were collecting. And it turned out that over 125 cases, it wasn't illegal drugs. It was stuff like domino sugar and baking powder. And they basically were doing these in the field kind of BS tests saying it was positive for whatever, and it wasn't drugs. And so they had to exonerate over 125 people. And that's just one county where they happened to bother to test after all these people pled guilty. In most counties, you plead guilty, they're done with you. They're not testing your evidence. And so it really makes you wonder what's happening everywhere else. And what I'm pretty sure is happening everywhere else is that there are a lot of these junk little tests that the police do, quote, in the field. And then it goes to the lab. But by that time, the person's pled guilty. And then they don't go through with the rest of the tests that would exonerate them. And they have a felony. Something else that you mentioned too, there's um, the incompetence and misconduct and all that stuff of the crime labs. There's also the National Registry of Exonerations and tens with the 2015 study by University of Michigan found that 4.1% of those on death row were falsely convicted. Conservative estimates in non-capital cases, two to 5%. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 2015, there's approximately 1,530,000 people in prison in the United States. And using the most conservative estimate of wrongful convictions, which is 1%, that's the the most conservative, uh, that makes 15,300 innocent people um, sitting uh, in prison um, with death row inmates having it go up to 4% makes the number climb to 61,200, roughly the capacity of Soldier Field, where Chicago Bears play. Yeah, that was some pretty um, heady stuff. It's also, really heavy. And I, I think the numbers yep. are super high because I think there's a lot of wrongfully convicted people who are convicted of misdemeanors and felonies where they just get out right away and nobody ever investigates them. And you use the conservative end of all those ranges with those numbers. So if you go to the higher end, of those ranges and it gets even uh, more. Uh, you also talk about lies because um, there's a lot of talk about mistaken identification, faulty um, eyewitness stuff. And that's become a very popular topic to talk about, about how faulty human memory is. But there's also a lot of witnesses who are motivated um, to just straight up lie. Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about that a lot recently because I've been working on this other case and it's like, <clears throat> there's a lot of reasons why you can, as a police officer, incentivize somebody to lie, one of which is they have a bunch of stuff hanging over their head, their own cases, and then you kind of say to them, look, hush, hush, if you do this thing, I'll make this other thing go away for you. So that's one way. Another way is to be like, hey, 
I know this guy is really scary. And so I'm going to put you in your family and witness protection. We're going to move you out of your neighborhood. We're going to put you in a house and pay for everything. So there's all kinds of ways to get people to give, to incentivize them to give false testimony. And then there's just sort of pressuring kids. I mean, I've seen cases where it's kids and, and the police are like, we know, you know, it's him. You just say it, we'll let you go home. And, and they do it, you know, because they're, they're easily influenced. So there's a lot of ways that you can talk somebody into lying. And also with the, with the lying too, sometimes people lie on their own volition. Maybe they were cheating. Maybe they were cheating. Maybe they were, um, or, or whatever reason. Look at Emma Till case recently, like so many decades after the fact, the woman's close to her deathbed, I think in her eighties. And she admitted in the interview that, uh, she lied, you know? And- I mean, that was so devastating. Totally. And in my client's case, both of the witnesses lied. <clears throat> and it was interesting. Their reasons for lying were different. The one person lied because she was in a lot of trouble and the police were going to get her out of it. So she lied for that reason. The other guy lied because his wife was the real witness and he didn't want her involved. And so he figured if he sort of stepped up and pretended that he saw it, it they would take the attention off of her. He didn't want her involved in the case. So that mm. was kind of his reason mm. for lying. People have all kinds of crazy reasons for lying and then bizarre ways of kind of rationalizing it after the fact so that they can live with themselves. Mm-hmm. And then some people can be coerced kind of into, into totally. little tacit mm-hmm. lies. Yeah, I've totally seen the coerced. technique they use where they ask someone, you know, the same question 700 different ways, you know, to try and trap them into some type of thing. You say, oh, you you changed your answer there. That's a lot. You know what I mean? And so people kind of fall on that kind of stuff. There's all kind of tricks of the trade. Absolutely. And the police are masters of that. There was a woman named Nikki Urino uh, recently, in a couple of years ago, who she had a sexual encounter with two college football players in a bathroom at a party it was either a bathroom or a bedroom but she was at a party and she um went and had a three-way sex with um these two football players they're both black football players and then she lied later her lawyer said that um she lied because the police pressured her to but um the reason that came out as to why she actually lied was there was another guy who i believe was a white guy that she wanted to be her boyfriend and I guess people saw her do this and the rumors are going around. So she wants to get kind of in front of the rumors. And, you know, she she didn't want to ruin the chance to have a relationship with this guy. So knowing that uh, it might get out that she had sex with these two football players, being that she had it at a party, she um, told them that she, was, that she was raped by them. And then she kind of had to commit to bringing the, the case now or whatever. She just got like a year in prison over it. They're about to sue her over um, in civil court over like, uh, ruining uh, mm. their college careers and possibly potentially almost ruining ruining uh, their lives. But other witnesses at the party uh, uh, reveal that she was lying because they saw her go willingly uh, with them. But but yeah, so between p- police pressuring you, people having their own personally motivated reasons, sometimes people lie over re- revenge. I think there's a example of somebody... Am I misremembering? Is that no, no, you're remembering correctly. And what's so interesting about that lie is how easily people believed it. Because again, it just plays into the stereotype. Oh, you're this white woman and these two black men savagely attacked you. Of course we believe you. Nobody questioned her. And nobody even thought to look behind that narrative. Um, 
mistakes is another thing that comes up in your book about just people. Uh, it, this stood out to me in your book. A shocking forty-five percent of the undocumented, uh, no, of the documented sixteen hundred wrongful convictions are a result of bad acts or omissions by police and prosecutors. Right. So that's, it is shocking. So, right. So this just goes back to how much power prosecutors have and how important it is to elect the right people, because a lot of the reason why so many people are locked up falsely is because of misconduct. The police commit misconduct and the prosecutors look the other way or the prosecutors themselves do it. It's a huge problem. And I'm thinking a lot about like, well, how do we hold people to account? Because one thing that's really interesting, so I'll just give you an example. In San Francisco, we had this guy, another amazing name. His name's Jamal True Love, True Love. And he was falsely convicted of a murder and he was sentenced to effectively a life sentence. And the woman who convicted him, the prosecutor, Linda Allen, she made up a whole story about this single eyewitness identification and how much danger this person felt like she was in. And it was all not true. And Jamal's conviction was reversed because the court of appeal found that she made up the whole story, essentially, to argue to the jury, like, oh, this witness has to be telling the truth because she's in so much danger, but she was never in any danger at all. And what's interesting to me is that, like, okay, so Jamal's conviction gets reversed. What does the DA do? Do they dismiss? No. They try him all over again with Linda Allen trying him all over again. And he gets acquitted because the jury actually hears the real story. And then what happens after that? They promote her. So she's training young attorneys on how to be prosecutors. So it's just, you're, it's a rot inside of your office. And rather than root it out, you're elevating it. And then Jamal Trulove sues and gets $13 million because of what happened to him. And they don't even second guess themselves at that point. It takes electing a new DA, Chase Boudin, to finally get this person fired. And, and wasn't this under uh, Kamala Harris's um uh, so Jamal or? was so Jamal was prosecuted under Kamala Harris. That's correct. So Linda Allen prosecuted Jamal when Kamala Harris was her boss, and then she got this reversal, and and it was clear the court of appeal said she committed horrible misconduct, and then George Gascon, who came into office next, let her try it all over again and promoted her, and you know that's a problem. That's a huge problem. You, and that's a clear cut case of somebody being framed and having his life stolen. And what's the response to that? The court of appeal calls you out and gives him a new trial. And the response by your office is, okay, we'll go ahead and and try him again. And then we're going to give you a promotion. That's just wrong. Uh, here's, here's an example of a really crazy miss, miss, um, conduct case. The Deborah Milky Armando Saldalte um, Jr. thing. That that one was uh, pretty bad. And and I'll just read this because I have it um, in front of me. Uh, this is from the book. After spending thousands of hours searching old court records, Mookie's lawyers were able to show Saldalte, who was uh, the investigator, was a liar and reprobate long before and well after Mookie's trial. 1973, internal affairs for Phoenix police disciplined him after he released a female driver with a possible outstanding warrant in exchange for sexual favors and then lied about it to his superiors. In 1986 and again in 89, Sadalti lied to a grand jury, which forced the judges in both cases to dismiss the indictments. In 1990, the same year Mookie was convicted and sentenced to die, a judge threw out another case after Sodalte admitted that he lied under oath and continued to question the defendant after he invoked his right to remain silent. The same year, 
a different judge to write a confession that Sadati had obtained through quote-unquote flagrant misconduct. 84 in, 19, in 1992, Sadalte obtained so-called confessions from defendants who were in the hospital, semi-conscious and seriously injured. In one case, the defendant did not know his own name, the year, or the name of the President of the United States. In the other case, even Sadalte admitted the, sub, the suspect was in pain and possibly had not responded to the reading of his Miranda rights because of the medication he was on. The jury in Milky's case knew nothing about Sadalte's lengthy history of doing whatever it took including uh, perjuring himself, to obtain so-called confessions from the men and women in his custody. In 2013, 23 years after Milky was sent to death row, the Ninth Circuit overturned her conviction. Even then, the state vowed to retry her and deterred only when the Arizona Court of Appeals forbade it, which, which was crazy to me that they, they were still going to try again, calling the case a severe stain on the Arizona justice system. But this is the part that I thought was crazy. Saldalte, now retired, has never been charged or convicted of any crime. According to Phoenix City Records, he was collecting a monthly pension in excess of 4300 as recently as 2014. Mario, can, can you imagine any job you had that would allow you to fuck up that much? It's <laughs> <laughs> just a blank check to fuck up. Yeah, no, I don't I couldn't imagine. And what what's so take? sad about the story, like I want to say to you, Oh, this is a crazy outlier case. It's typical. Yeah, and he had so many chances just to keep fucking up, and he made it all the way to the end and got his uh, pensions. It's nuts. Yeah. Um... I know. So it's hard not to be to hear all these stories and just be so angry about what's happening. And that's why I got really interested in this idea that we could figure out a way forward outside of the criminal justice system and use some other method of trying to reckon with what's going on and move forward in some kind of a productive way. And that's what really attracted me to this idea of thinking about restorative justice as an alternative and, and even in some cases a replacement for the system that we have, which is so broken. Yeah. And the hair stuff like the hair stuff, the arson, the the bite marks. I had no idea all this stuff was error prone um junk science. And yet all these things about like like the guy kirk odom he was the guy that was uh convicted in of raping robbing and sodomizing a white woman in washington dc that's the guy who got raped in prison and got hiv and he he was a victim of some of that junk junk science he was a victim of junk hair science and then i mean the thing that's really important to understand is that he was victimized multiple times so he was falsely accused he was falsely convicted and then he was himself the victim of a horrible crime. And, and then he got a horrible disease. Like, those are multiple levels of victimization that you're inflicting on someone. They, um, ignoring confessions is another one that comes up a lot, where people just straight up... There was one case where people... Somebody confessed to the case multiple times over years, and they just kept... Not just one person, different oh, people ignored the confession. I know, I know. They're like, no, 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 no. You don't really mean it, and they're saying, no, I, I really Jeez. do mean it. Yeah. And then there's the false confessions where you've got the kid. This is a Central Park Five classic case, right? Yep. They won't let you go home. You've been up all night. You haven't eaten. You're terrified. You're young, and you're just. They're telling you, just say you did it, and we'll let you go home. And people believe that. They believe that because they're kids. Yeah. Now, can you explain what group exonerations are? Okay, so this is a really horrible phenomenon that I don't think gets enough attention. But basically what happens is you have one or two or three or four bad apples in a police department and they will prey on a community. And 
surprise, surprise, it's often a community of color. And what they will do is repeatedly falsely convict numerous people out of the same community. And so you'll get 18 or 19 or 20 exonerations, and there'll be the same bad apples at the root of them. And so that's a group exoneration. It's multiple people whose cases are unconnected, except that the corrupt officer is the same. And uh, one one popular example, Mario, you probably know about it, is the Rampart scandal. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure you know yeah, about that. Uh, Mario is from guy's LA. Raphael, I can't remember his name. Um, Raphael Perez. Uh, I know exactly. Who yep, yep, that's it. Raphael Perez, yes. I remember that very well. <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, yeah, and you bring up uh, three reasons for group exonerations. Uh, that they're underreported. What was the second one? Well, the, the, also, I think race plays an enormous role in group exonerations. I can't think of a group exoneration that wasn't race-based. Oh, oh yeah, and, 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 and something else you, you mentioned, too, is uh, you mentioned the underreported, you mentioned the race of the uh, victims, and then the other thing is you mentioned that um, people don't realize that small group or individual misconduct on the <clears throat> police force can have such exponential um, impact is another thing. I also wonder, to what degree do you think people, even now, still have a romanticized view of police? I was wondering to what extent that's evaporated mm. with all this um, news and coverage of Great bad question. cops, or if people still have a uh, rosy, rose-colored glass view of um, what police are like. I think it depends on your community. So I think <clears throat> there are large parts of this country, maybe the Donald Trump voting parts of this country, that see police as heroic and sort of inclined to believe them. I mean, I remember this when I was a public defender, we would do voir dire of the jury. And, you know, there are people who would say, when asked, would you trust the word of a police officer over the word of a civilian? They would answer, yes, I would. And that yeah. is a very real thing in this country, despite all of the things that we know. And of course, the vast majority of people who work in law enforcement are honest and hardworking, but there's no skepticism when people are in the jury box and they're supposed to be skeptical. So I think it continues to be a really big problem. And when you tell a jury, this person is presumed innocent. It always killed me when I was a public defender because prosecutors would whine about how they had this burden that they had to carry to prove the person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And what I would always say in my opening is I bet the 12 of you looked at me and you thought I was a lawyer for this for the defendant and you looked across the room and you thought, okay, well that's the, the prosecutor. And then you looked at the person sitting next to me and you thought, oh, that must be the wrongfully accused person. And then I would pause and say, none of you thought that. You were all thinking the same thing, which is, I wonder what he did. And that's an unconstitutional thought, but we all think it. You don't think I was dragged in here for no reason. You think I'm here because this guy did something. And so they can whine all day about their burden. But the truth is they're coming in, I think, with a lot of people presuming guilt and presuming that the people who are going to testify in the uniforms and the badges are telling the truth. And I think that that's still the same in the vast majority of courtrooms across the U.S. Um, something, something, that was, um, something that was interesting, I thought, was you bring up some, like, this isn't all just a horror show. There are some, like, um, encouraging stories. One of them was uh, this guy, McMahon, who kind of was on one side of it and ended up becoming he was a former prosecutor who ended up kind of 
um, having his was he the one that said a road to Damascus moment? There was someone who was yeah. Well, he's he was in that same chapter. He's a real, Jack McMahon. He's a super interesting guy. Yeah, he was a very hard charging homicide prosecutor, and then he became a defense lawyer, and he really had a bunch of revelations. It was interesting. And um, there was the happily ever after part where you talk about a lot of the aftermath, and some of them aren't happily ever after like there was the guy um i forgot his first daryl hunt his, his last name was yeah and he ended up starting some kind of innocence program but he ended up committing a suicide right but then there were some other ones who ended up um getting out getting exonerated finding love um the guy hainsworth who i think is probably the one that frames the whole book he ended up getting like a lot of money and it brings back what you said like like what do you think about things like that, where people will actually tell the person, you know, in a way, this is the best thing that happened to you? Because he ended up getting like a college education in jail, right? And ended up being like a model prisoner. And he got all this money. He has four cars now. I'm sure that people would probably say, hey, this was, this was, a, this was a come up for you. Those decades you spent locked up. It's locked up. so messed up when people say that to him. It's like, oh, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. You served 27 years for a rape that you didn't commit so that you could have a bunch of cars. It's so crazy. Like, as if, given the <laughs> alternative, <laughs> I mean, it's just insane <laughs> that anybody would say that. But yeah, I mean, he's a really interesting case because I kind of feel like the, the irony of Thomas Hainsworth is all he wanted to be when he grew up was a police officer. He really wanted to be oh, one. Man. And kind of at the end of the day, it's still a little bit his dream to do that. And he, because of the weird nature of this case and this prosecutor who really believed that he was innocent, that prosecutor hired him to work in the prosecutor's office. So he's still there. And Yeah, he works in the prosecutor's office now. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think to some degree that kind of aligns with his objectives in life. He wanted to be the good guy and he always saw the good guys on that side. So it's just super yeah. ironic to me the outcome of that case and also that yeah i mean i think he is someone who has had an extraordinary life story after the fact and is has is living yeah, in some ways so. just a really beautiful life but the idea that oh you're so lucky you were wrongfully convicted is a really sick thing to say yeah it's kind of morbid yeah. um something that you tweeted that um what time ago that i actually very strongly disagreed with but when i saw your book i kind of got a little context for um why you might have tweeted it but i still strongly disagree with it and i would like to uh, talk about it is um like there's a part in this book you talk about a lot about forgiveness and a lot of the stories are actually you know really um beautiful like people on both sides of it have kind of been through a lot like the person who made the mistaken identity but they really like fully believed it or they were kind of pushed by police into um, believing it. There's like co-defendants who, or not, not, not co-defendants, co-accused who were accused of, accused of, not accused, co-defendants who lied and said that another person um, did it. But at the time they were teenagers and they felt really guilty about it. And they recanted like decades later saying, you know, the police pressured me to lie and say, this guy did it. And I felt like, uh, messed up and there's lots of stories about like people forgiving the people who misidentified them the people who lied when they were snitching on them or um i'm trying to remember were there any stories about people forgiving prosecutors or cops or was that not in there 
Oh, oh, the the tweet was about the um the tweet was about the Botham John forgiving the the Amber Geiger. That's that's her name. I I can't remember if they were forgiving of cops and prosecutors in in the book. I don't really remember an example, but I do remember that uh you did tweet like it was a heartwarming thing, and I like so disagree with that mainly because she didn't even plead guilty, which 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 drove me nuts because. Even during the trial, uh, she didn't plead guilty. Uh, uh, the stories of forgiveness in the book were kind of different because I felt like a lot of people went through a journey or there was some kind of restitution or some people came forward and recanted when they kind of didn't have to. But like with that one, I felt it was kind of like too fresh. Like, like she didn't even plead guilty in this trial that she was like, she didn't say sorry, really. Uh, she didn't to the contrary. Yeah. And she didn't say sorry at sentencing either. I think what I was, and I feel like Twitter is such an imperfect tool, but I think what I was trying to say was I felt like Botham Jean's brother had the right to express what he wanted to express. So, you know, we, we, we say like, we want to understand victims, but all we're doing is saying every victim is exactly the same and every victim wants the same thing, which is for this person to be sent away for the most amount of time possible and to rot. And not everybody feels that way. So when he got up there at sentencing and said the things that he said to this woman, that's what he wanted. And that's what he felt was just. And I feel like the reaction to him saying that, sort of condemning him, was wrong because he's a victim. And, you know, obviously she's going to prison, et cetera. But he, what he wanted for his own healing was to say that he thought she was a good person, that he loved her, and that he wanted to embrace her. And I'm not saying she deserved it. I'm saying he deserved it because he's the victim and that's what he wanted in that moment. So we should give that to him. But I think something that bothers me about that is I feel like there's always this expectation on Black people to forgive. And and I felt like he was kind of feeding into that. And it's kind of bigger than him at that point because he's kind of I was going to say, it, it, that, that is an element of it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but he's, I, he's I think kind of the this, disconnect with him. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I think that the, there was a, a slight cultural disconnect, though, because with this not being, you know, the country of origin for he and his family. So I was thinking maybe they they looked at it, uh, uh, the, uh, not understanding the collective um, cultural baggage that, that had for for black Americans. You know what I mean? So historical. Trauma. I guess that could have been a part of it. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. I, yeah I, you're right. I mean, there's all this stuff behind it, exactly what you both said. And it's easy for me to say, oh, we should honor the victim. But you're right. It's it's super, super complicated. I guess, I don't know. I think these situations are so victim specific and we're constantly telling victims, you need to do this and you need to say that. And we use them and we use them up and then we kind of throw them away when we get what we want out of them. And I think it's important to honor what they want to some degree. But I also understand what you're saying, which is then it puts this expectation on black people. Oh, well, just go ahead and forgive. And that's kind of what you're supposed to do. And, and that's not the message, obviously. But also, like, for some reason, that's the first thing they always ask black victims for some reason. In the way they don't do for white victims. Because, for example, the Charleston, South Carolina thing, like, days after Dylan Roof shot the people, um, the first thing that the reporters asked the victims were, um, you know, do you forgive? Uh, and I was like... Why even ask that? I feel like with the Boston Marathon, like they didn't really ask like the white people, hey, uh, do you forgive the Boston? Like it didn't even come up in conversation or they asked the 9-11 wives, um, do you forgive 
uh, Al Qaeda. Like it's just something that I feel like white people kind of need to see us forgive uh, reflexively. But something that was interesting. I don't know. If, um, no, you're right, and that's a deeply that's a deeply important point, and it's incredibly problematic that 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 question only comes up in one kind of case with one kind of victim. I, I did have one question for you from a practical standpoint as a trial attorney, and I was wondering, right? Um, I don't, because uh, I'm actually an attorney myself, but I do like immigration stuff. I don't really do uh, trial, uh, especially criminal trial. But in any way, do you think that um, the optics of hugging her uh, helps with the sentencing or the appeal or, you know, like kind of color the rest of the case, like, like not even on a moral level or whatever, just on a strategy level. Cause that's something that I was wondering too, but I was wondering if it's something that actually um, makes a difference in things. Like when you see the brother hugging her and asking to forgive her, does it affect how she's sentenced? Does it affect her chance for appeal or Things like that. You, you, see what, you see what I'm saying? Or? I do. I do see what you're saying. I think the answer is yes. And it's kind of interesting because there's been this movement to empower victims to give victim impact statements and to be heard at sentencing. And what's interesting is I think that the movement to do that was really motivated by the idea that judges would hear from victims who would be asking for as much punishment as possible. And what's strange about it is that sometimes it works in the reverse. And I think that you can't overstate the the impact of a victim impact statement. It's called a victim impact statement for a reason. So I think they do have an effect. I do. But yeah, I do think that victim impact statements are important. But then like the other thing that's kind of weird about them so you can just like flip it over, right? So, okay, you can think about um, Botham Jean's brother. I think his name was Brant Jean and his impact statement, which is one of forgiveness, right? And at question, well, so did it have an impact on Amber Geiger's sentence? And then you could look at the Stanford rape case, <clears throat> the Brock Turner case, where the victim impact statement went viral, as we all know. And it didn't really seem to have an impact. Like it's kind of seemed like, Judge Persky was going to give Brock Turner what he was going to give him. But then the impact of it after was to get that judge removed from his job and all this outrage, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And it really makes you wonder, okay, so do you ignore victims' wishes at your peril if you're the judge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good. That's a good question. I mean, that's a good question. Something, yeah, something else too with the. Um, I know there was a case out here yeah. years ago. Um, oh, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, T. Oh, no, no. It's okay. I've been talking a lot. Please, by all means. No, I remember there was a case um, in Los Angeles uh, a few decades ago, the Tasha Harlan's case. And so there was the store owner. Uh, she was actually convicted in trial. And I think she got convicted of manslaughter, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was a really weird because I think even the the LAPD, the officers who uh, were first arriving on the scene, who first arrived to the scene and 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 did the initial investigation. I think even they were like, yes, you know, this was a heinous act. We we think that, you know, she should get significant time for this. And then the judge, uh, you know, did her own thing in that case. And so, you know, that kind of goes along to what you said, you know, victim impact statements, you know, um, didn't seem to play. Here's a situation where even the LAPD was like, wow, we can't believe like this judge actually did this. 
and the judge did it at her peril, you know, because, you know, at the time, you know, Los Angeles was a flash, was just, you know, it was wedding to erupt, you know, it was a powder keg wedding to erupt at that time. It was a lot going on. And uh, that judge did that. So just when you said that, it kind of reminded me of uh, of that particular case. It's interesting that I think how judges are really, I think, especially recently with the Brock Turner case in California in particular, Mm -hmm. more attuned to victim impact statements. And I'm not sure whether I think that's a good thing or a bad thing, because Mm. If there's if it's swaying them to kind of do the wrong thing and be super punitive against people, and this is what always freaked me out about Brock Turner because it was like, oh, this white guy, he should get a million years. But most people who are caught up on that kind of a charge and end up in court are not white. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, mm. then you're gonna use that same line of reasoning to just extend mass incarceration. And that worries mm. me, right? So how do you, uh, as someone who's an advocate of, of, um, of uh, you know, prison reform, obviously you're anti-mass incarceration, you want to see some things change. How do you find that balance, if you do at all? Because on one hand, it, it seems like some people need to be obviously uh, incarcerated. And, you know, and then you have all these other cases where using... The same criminal justice system, a a large amount of people get uh, unjustly convicted. So, I mean, where do you where do you walk the line on that as someone who's actively involved in it? I know it's really hard. And I think I'm not a prison abolitionist. I don't believe that. Oh, okay. I don't. I didn't mean to put that. I think that there are some people who are super dangerous and they need to be isolated Mm -hmm. from society for at least some period of time because they're going to hurt a lot of people. So I'm not on that end. But you're right. I mean, I I think that we're convicting and locking up way too many people, either because they didn't do it or because whatever they did doesn't warrant that kind of a punishment. And so I do find myself conflicted because on the one hand, I don't think it's realistic to do away with jail and prison because first of all, there's not the political appetite. But second of all, I'm not convinced that that's in the interest of public safety and not that far to the left. But at the same time, what I see every day is so um, overly punitive and racist that it's, um, I don't know how to say this other than deeply disturbing and needs to. Sometimes you wonder if the whole thing doesn't need to be <laughs> burned down and, and start from fresh, you start from into scratch. Any yeah. courtroom in any city in this country and everybody is black and brown. I mean, almost mm-hmm. everybody. How can you not think anything other than this system is mm-hmm. racist? There's only right. one conclusion. And so if you're in mm. that system every day, there's no there's no other logical conclusion in my mind. And so then there's a part of me that's like, okay, we just have to get rid of the whole thing. But is that is that realistic? I don't think so. You know something I wonder about too, right? Is um, the role of civil trials. Because there's this kind of sense where we'll just take care of it on the civil side. And uh, who yeah, cares about yeah, getting the prosecutors? It's almost like, it's like, it's like built-in insurance money or whatever. There's a certain amount of payoffs we're going to do. And, and I think sometimes wouldn't it just be easier to just get rid of fucked up cops? But it seems like they're much more willing to just spend millions a lot and just keep these silver servants on the payroll. And I just find that kind of crazy, both how they kind of buy off a lot of times victims' parents, for example, in police shootings preemptively uh, to get them 
not talking. I used to always wonder, like, why do so few of uh, the victims' parents of police brutality cases not become activists? And I realized a lot of them kind of got a big, big check, and part of the check seems to be to not agitate. That's so interesting. And I also think maybe just exhaustion and resources that they're just so beaten down. They just want it to that, stop. <clears throat> that too. That too. And, and when I say buy off, I don't want to call them sellouts. I don't, because I don't want to make the, I want to make sure that implication is not there just in case it sounds like that. Like, I'm not saying that. Like, it, it's understandable that um, if you get a lot of money and you have a chance to get a lot of money and, you know, you should get that money for the wrongful death. But it seems that a lot of them kind of get tied to this expectation that um, you're not going to uh, agitate further. I think sometimes they explicitly contract for that, like as part of the settlement. Because, uh, for example, uh, with the with the M. Jean um, forgiveness thing, when the attorney was kind of called to task about it, like, why did you do this? He actually admitted, like, I always advise uh, my clients to forgive. This was his way of kind of defending himself against people, but kind of made him look worse. He said, I always advise him to forgive because it plays well with um, juries in the civil case. And the people got even angry at him because they're like, wait a minute, that's why you told him to... uh, um, That's crazy. Really? So interesting. Yeah, Yeah, he said it it on uh, Twitter, (laughs) of all places. I was kind of surprised he said that that part out. I realized that. Oh my God, that's so... Wow, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of wondering how you feel about like, the, like uh, the whole, so, like people think of the civil system as kind of a supplement or a second bite of the apple for these things. But in some ways, like, do you feel it kind of undermines um, people answering in the system for the wrongdoing? You know, it's so interesting. I don't know. I think, I think it does create some perverse incentives, and I also think that there's ways of. So let me just kind of give you an example of what I'm thinking about. But I'm working on this case right now where my client was wrongfully convicted and he spent 17 years in prison for something that he didn't do. And now there's a civil lawsuit. And the victim's family, you know, they suffered horribly because of this case, right? And the question is, are they going to come forward and tell the truth? And I think from their perspective, it's like, well, going along with what the prosecution said, we got this and that and the other thing. And we're exhausted by this whole thing and we don't want to be involved anymore we just want you to leave us alone. So I feel like there's that component sometimes in a lot of civil cases. Um, and then there's just the component of not just, just, just being tired. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of people. They just don't want to be bothered anymore. The word closure appears in your book several times. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of that word, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have anything else to um, ask. Do you have anything else to ask, Mario? I think I wore both of you guys out. Yes. He's probably chasing one of his kids. Uh, and you know what? That's exactly what was happening. I was wrangling. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. I did, but it, it'll probably... I don't know if it's just whether she can briefly summarize it, but I was going to ask, um, how do you go about selecting which cases that you want to try and uh, uh, seek that that form of justice on when you when you see them? 
you know, I don't know if you understand what I'm asking. But. It's really hard because there's so many people and there's only so much time that you have and that your students have. And so I'm really lucky because I get paid to be a law professor and represent people mm-hmm. for free, but I can't represent that many people. And my, my, my team are law students. They're not even right. like lawyers. So I try to go where there's the most need. And I feel like if we didn't do it, nobody mm-hmm. else would. And that's kind of how I ended up with the wrongful conviction case that we're working on now. I just realized as outrageous as this is to me, there's 300 people just like this guy. Jeez. And if we don't do it, right. no one else will. Mm. Yeah. I will say you should consider writing among uh, any future books, a time management book. Cause yeah, you seem to really do a lot like between uh, <laughs> doing, doing cases, uh, teaching classes, writing articles like you put the rest of us to shame no i don't no no but i i think i've been fueled by a constant sense of outrage so it's very motivating oh oh yeah this show is all about constant outrage so yeah you're in the the right place (laughs) but but uh yeah since there's no more questions you have any parting thoughts or anything you want to plug or anything you guys are so great i had so much fun thank you for having me thank you for doing the show i think you're doing really important work and yeah, I mean, for even just wanting to ask these questions and listen to the answers, I'm really grateful. Yeah, and thank you for being willing to spend like two and a half hours uh, with with us. You know, I know it's not an insignificant amount of time, and we really appreciate it. And yeah, yeah, uh, if you ever want to come back and plug anything or talk about anything else that you think is important, by all means, reach out. You're always welcome to come back. Thank you so much. I had such a great time. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All right, have a good night. Be good. Be well. Bye. Peace.